Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 8 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus. But before we get into the narrative, I just want to let you know that if you're not following me on Instagram and Twitter, you're missing out on some pretty quality content, so you should probably go do that. I am at Forgot10Lands on both. That's the word forgot, and then the number 10, and then the word lands. I couldn't quite get just the word forgotten lands, so I had to improvise, and I hope to see you over there. So, our story today begins on October 8th, 1912, in the Balkan Peninsula. And since this was the Balkans, and it was the first half of the 20th century, that meant it was time for a good war. On that day, the aptly named Balkan League, which was comprised of Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia, and Montenegro, attacked the Ottoman Empire and started the First Balkan War. Now let me set the geographical stage for you here. The Ottomans at this point held a huge swath of Balkan territory. Obviously, Greece was jutting off of the southern border, and Bulgaria, Serbia, and Montenegro were in the north, but only Montenegro's borders would be recognizable to anyone today. This was over a hundred years ago, and these countries had a lot of formation to do. These states all held territory bordering the Ottomans before the war, but all four of them felt they were owed more, and they felt good about their odds at taking it because the Ottomans were busy with a war with Italy. And the Balkan League was absolutely right to feel good about their odds. The Ottomans were unable to make a progressive response to the attack. At this point in history, the Turkish military had become highly politicized, so allegiances were not necessarily with the central government and any reaction to the attacks were highly disjointed and unorganized. Now, the First Balkan War is a complicated topic in and of itself. With the Ottomans fighting a war on four fronts, there's plenty to talk about, but we're not going to cover it in its entirety today. We're only going to focus on the Greek front. By October 21st, just 13 days after the initial assault on the Ottomans, the Greeks had marched north and captured the port town of Preveza. Preveza is an important city. If you look at a map of Greece today, you'll see three islands stacked on top of each other to the west. These are the lower three Ionian islands, and Preveza holds access to the Ambracian Gulf, which is that little body of water you'll see to the northeast of these islands. That meant that all inland trade coming from the sea pretty much had to go through Preveza. Since trade means money, and money means power, this was a pretty big win for the Greeks. But they weren't done yet. On November 5th, a Greek general with the fantastic name of Spiros Spiromilios led a revolt against an Ottoman garrison in the town of Himara, which is in the modern southwest coast of Albania, and expelled the Turkish garrison there without any trouble at all. Then, a month later, the Greeks met their first defeat. On December 14, 1912, they attacked Bizani and were repelled by the Ottoman garrison within the fortress. Bizani was an important city. It is in northwest modern Greece, and it controlled Ioannina, which was the largest city in the area. Defenses at Bizani had been constructed by Rudiger von der Goltz, which, if you can't tell, was not a Turk, but a German, 
which meant that the engineering was probably pretty solid. The Greeks were now looking for another win, and they found one six days later when they took the city of Corsay in modern southeast Albania. And something that's important to know is that all of the fighting I've just described took place on the Epirate front. Epirus is the Greek name for the region we know now as southern Albania slash northwestern Greece. It's a very ancient name and region. The kingdom of Epirus existed in pre-Roman times, and it's also the central focus of our story today. So after their victory in Corsay, the Greeks controlled all of Epirus except for Ioannina, because they couldn't take the fortress at Bizani. But at this point in the war, the Greeks didn't really have anything else to do but take the fortress at Bizani. They controlled all of the land surrounding the fortress. So, slowly but surely, Greek troops from Epirus, Macedonia, and Greece itself started moving in on the fortress at Bizani in order to provide reinforcements with the small force they already had camped out there. Unfortunately, they weren't quite fast enough, because on December 22nd, just two days after the Greek victory at Corsay, the Ottomans counterattacked the Greeks outside of Bizani and gained some ground outside of the fort. It took the Greeks a little while to recover from this, but a month later, now in January of 1913, the Greeks launched a frontal attack against the Ottomans outside the fort and pushed them back inside the walls. Now firmly entrenched outside of the city, the Greeks waited, slowly receiving reinforcements until their numbers swelled past 40,000 men. By March 4th, the Greeks finally outnumbered the Ottomans, who had 35,000 men of their own, both in the fort and in the city of Ioannina itself, so the Greeks decided to attack. That morning, Crown Prince Constantine, the future King Constantine I of Greece and the son of the sitting king, George, ordered every gun they had to fire on the wall of the city in order to make ready for the attack. The next day, three Greek infantry divisions attacked the southern corners of the walls, while a smaller attack was launched on the north section in order to split the Ottomans' focus. By 6 p.m., the Greeks had broken through the defensive perimeter and entered the southern outskirts of Ioannina, forcing much of the Ottoman forces to fall back into the city and take up further defensive positions. As the Turks fell back, three dozen of their officers and almost a thousand of their men were captured by the Greeks, and as night fell, any Ottomans left in the fortress walls around the city escaped and fled the battle. A little bit of fighting continued into the next day, but it wasn't looking good for the Ottomans, and at 11 p.m., they officially surrendered both the city and the garrison. This was a huge victory for the Greeks. Not only had they secured all of Epirus, but in a three-day siege, which is usually quite brutal, they had lost only 500 men. Meanwhile, the Ottomans had had 2,800 men killed, and 8,600 of them had been captured. And here's a little fun fact for you that's not really related to the narrative, but I thought I would include it anyway. I could only find one source for this, so take it as you will, but according to aviation history author David Baker, it was during the Battle of Bizani that N. Desakoff, a Russian man flying for the Greeks, was shot down. This is the first ever instance of an aircraft being shot down in combat, and definitely the beginning of an era. So, here we are. It's March 6th, 1913, and the Greeks control all of Epirus. But it's at this point that we're going to rewind the clock just a little bit in order to get us on track more with our specific narrative. 
on November 28th, 1912, just about three months before the Greek victory at Bizani, leaders in the Albanian community declared their independence from the Ottoman Empire in a city called Vlore. When the Greeks achieved their victory at Corsay on December 20th, as I mentioned before, the Greek border was just barely south of Vlore. Meanwhile, Serbia had occupied the rest of what we now know as Albania. As a result of these two facts, this new independent Albania could hardly exercise any control outside of Vlore itself. In the grand scheme of things, this would have been a minor rebellion for the Serbs and Greeks that they could have snuffed out at a moment's notice, but it's at this point that the self-proclaimed great powers of Europe decided to get involved. Most European powers supported the idea of a free and independent Albania, but especially the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Kingdom of Italy. Italy controlled the western banks of the Adriatic Sea, and Austria-Hungary controlled most of the eastern bank, so whoever could exert more control over small Albania would become increasingly powerful in the region, and it was certainly better than dealing with the Ottomans. This put both of these countries, and by default their ally, Germany, at odds with the Greeks and the Serbs. At this, the rest of the great powers sensed trouble and a threat to the delicate balance of power in Europe, so they decided to intervene in the definition of the Albanian border. The Triple Entente, an alliance comprised of the UK, France, and Russia, supported Greek claims to northern Epirus because the younger generations of the area spoke Greek and were becoming increasingly culturally similar to Greece. Meanwhile, the Triple Alliance of Italy, Germany, and Austria-Hungary supported Albanian claims to the region because they wanted to be on the good side of any new government. You know, in case they wanted to exert control. In the end, the Triple Alliance was more local and more powerful in the region, so the internationally recognized owner of Northern Epirus was Albania, not Greece. On May 30th, 1913, the Treaty of London was signed by the Balkan League, Triple Entente, and Triple Alliance, which internationally recognized Northern Epirus as a part of Albania. The Greeks obviously weren't too happy about signing away a part of the territory they had just conquered, but in the face of opposition from the most powerful countries in the world, they really had little choice. This was made evident on December 17th, when the treaty took effect and the lands were officially ceded to Albania, but this really was in name only because the Greek army hung out in the area for quite a while. Two months later, in February of 1914, the great powers sent a message to Greek Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos, demanding that all Greek troops fully vacate northern Epirus. At this point, Venizelos actually complied, not because he was okay with giving up the territory, but because he needed the international community on his side in the ongoing dispute with the Ottomans over islands east of Greece and west of Turkey, in a pretty ambiguous area. The Greek population of northern Epirus, however, didn't care about diplomacy. They were appalled that the Greeks would give up on them without so much as a shot fired. Greek troops were now slowly vacating and being replaced by Albanian troops, so the Greek Epirates knew they had to act quickly. And they did. On February 28, 1914, just a week after the evacuation began, Greek Epirates declared their autonomy as the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus, with Georgios Christakis Sografos, the former Greek Minister of Foreign Affairs, 
as its president. The movement caught on pretty quickly. Himara, the city that had revolted against the Ottomans in favor of the Greeks in November of 1912, now revolted against the Greeks in favor of the Epirates. Armed clashes with the Albanian military were immediate, and they went largely in the Epirates' favor. Things were going so well for Epirus that Zographos reached out to Corsay to see if they wanted to join the rebellion, but the city was placed under martial law by the local colonel in order to prevent this. Even if much of the Greek population and many people within the Greek government supported the Epirate movement, the official position of the Greek government was that this was an illegal rebellion, so the colonel had to do his best to put it down. On March 1st, Greece officially transferred Corsay over to the Albanian military, completely ending a pirate hopes of adding the city to their fledgling nation. The next day, Zographos gave a speech condemning the great powers for being so focused on the Albanian national identity that they ignored the cries of the pirates for their own identity, calling it a violation of their human rights. He also denounced Greece for occupying their lands just to, quote, betray it against our will to a foreign tyrant, unquote. And you knew he meant it, too, because he followed this up by calling for, quote, citizens to undergo every sacrifice to defend the integrity of the territory and its liberties from any attack whatsoever, unquote. Zographos knew that rejoining Greece would never be approved by the great powers, so he suggested three possible solutions to the issue. The first was that the pirates would accept full autonomy within the new Albanian state, much like Hong Kong is supposed to work within the People's Republic of China. Secondly, they would accept being sort of chopped up into little communities, and then those communities gaining their own autonomy within Albania. This isn't really that much different from the first one, other than the fact that it may result in a less defined, a pirate national identity. And thirdly, and I think this is the strangest one of all, Zographos said that the pirates would accept direct control by the great powers themselves. I'm not sure how he saw this one working, but in the end it doesn't really matter because it never happened. Something I didn't mention before that I definitely should have mentioned is that this new form of Albanian state was a principality. And on March 7th, the designated prince, Wilhelm of Wide, arrived in Albania in order to take his throne. The Albanians wanted to make sure that everything was nice and tidy for their new monarch, so on that day they attacked Eurocaster, which was the capital of the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus. Unfortunately for them, the Epirates put up way more of a fight than they thought they were going to, and the Albanians were forced to fall back. But now that Prince Wilhelm was actually in the country, the Epirate Rebellion was a serious issue, and even the Greeks had to admit that something needed to be done about it. So, on March 9th, just two days after Wilhelm arrived, the Greek navy blockaded the port city of Sarande, which was one of the Epirates' rebellious cities. Now that they had lost control of their major port, the Epirates were in a difficult position, and two days later they agreed to meet with the Albanians and work out a solution. The Albanians were willing to accept a semi-autonomous pirate government within the Principality of Albania, but the pirates would only accept full autonomy, and so talks failed. Of course, they probably knew it was going to fail anyway because the entire time, pirate troops had been on the warpath, taking more and more territory. 
In fact, despite losing access to the sea routes, the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus was doing pretty well. They now controlled all of their claimed territory, except, of course, for Corsay, which they had failed to take. But they were more than willing to change that fact. On March 22nd, the Epirate unit known as the Sacred Band reached Corsay and launched a full assault on the city, managing to send the local Albanian force into retreat for a number of days. I find the name Sacred Band really interesting. It would seem to me that this Sacred Band was named after the Sacred Band of Thebes, which was an ancient Greek hoplite unit that existed in the area 2300 years earlier. Like I said before, Epirus is a very ancient name and a very ancient idea, and even though the original sacred bands were Thebans, not Epirates, the Epirates saw themselves as Greeks and therefore saw the Thebans as their brothers. So, this new sacred band held Corsay, and they managed to do so for five days until March 27th, when Albanian reinforcements arrived and chased them out of the city in turn. And then a month after this, the Greeks had finally completed their evacuation of the region. The entire time that the Epirates had effectively been fighting for their lives, the Greek troops seemed to have been sort of dilly-dallying in the region, taking their sweet time. But April 28th, 1914 is the day that they were finally out of Epirus. And now that the great powers couldn't yell at the Greeks anymore, they decided to yell at Zographos instead. On May 6th, they demanded that he hold another round of talks in order to solve the problem. So the very next day, a ceasefire went into effect in order to allow this to happen. Unfortunately for the Epirates, this ceasefire came just as their troops were once again about to take Corsay, but they had to stop short. So, on May 17th, at the demand of the Great Powers, Epirate and Albanian delegates met on the island of Corfu which is in the northwestmost corner of modern Greece. There they agreed that the provinces of northern Epirus would come under Albanian nominal sovereignty, but with full autonomy like they had wanted. The Albanian government would be allowed to dismiss any Epirate officials as long as they first took into account the attitude of the Epirate population, and the Albanian and Epirate militaries would be integrated within one another. And this is a key move. It is very difficult and sometimes downright impossible to unite two distinct national identities into one. But if men serve with one another, they're much more inclined to see the other group as their brothers instead of the other group. This is a tactic that's been used by multi-ethnic countries around the world. Uh, just off the top of my head, Nigeria, which has three major ethnic groups constantly warring with one another, has integrated their military as a multi-ethnic force in an attempt to quell violence among these groups. So I really have to give the Albanians and the Epirates props for this one, because it's a sound strategy for sure. So all was well now between the Albanians and the Epirates. And a month after the start of the talks, on June 18th, the Great Powers ratified this protocol. Five days later, Albania did the same. Three days after that, on June 26th, 1914, the Epirate government met in order to ratify the protocol themselves, but the representative of Himara, which was that general with the fantastic name from earlier, Spiros Spiromilios, protested 
claiming that this was not what the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus had agreed upon, and that they stood nothing to gain from this agreement. The Himara delegation promptly left the council, refusing to participate further. The Epirates approved it without them, and this should be where the story ends, but if you follow me on Instagram, you know that this episode ends with a twist, and this is the part where the twist comes in. I would wager that even if you're not really a history fan, in which case I'm not sure why you're listening to me, you have heard this part of the story before. On June 28th, just two days after the Epirates ratified the agreement, a Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip shot and killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, which sent the world spiraling into World War I. Now, Albania, being in the Balkans, was immediately destabilized by the war, prompting political turmoil and preventing the Corfu Protocol from ever taking effect. The country dissolved into multiple smaller political units, and the pirate armed forces immediately continued the fight against the Albanians, despite what their government had agreed upon. By September 3rd, the situation in the country was so bad that Prince William fled, which effectively disbanded the Principality of Albania, and that meant that the Corfu Protocol had been signed with a country that no longer existed. The great powers now began to fear that the situation in Albania would become worse and spill over into neighboring regions, so they allowed the Kingdom of Greece to reoccupy northern Epirus in order to provide stability to the region. And so on October 27, 1914, the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus ceased to exist when it was once again annexed by the Kingdom of Greece. With a lifespan of February 28, 1914 to October 27, 1914, this country lasted for a whopping 241 days. And that means it was probably the longest lasting country we've covered on this show so far. But it was forgotten nonetheless, so let's talk about why. I think the easy answer is to say, well, just look at the twist ending of the episode. World War I happened right after the Autonomous Republic of Northern Epirus lived. So no kidding, everyone forgot about it. Everyone's worried about World War I. But I think there is a little bit more to it than that. I think the biggest factor involved in erasing this from the public consciousness is its geographical location. Namely, it happened in the Balkans. The Balkans have been a geopolitical disaster for like 2,000 years now, and I think you would be pretty hard-pressed to find just the average person on the street that can name every country in the Balkans by looking at a map. So when we're talking about the history of a country that doesn't even exist anymore, with a name that doesn't exist anymore, like a Pyrus, it's a little wonder that people largely are not talking about it. If this episode was titled The Autonomous Republic of Northern Greece, there would probably be a pretty significant chunk of Greek population that knows the era of history that we're talking about, but it's not. This is about Epirus, and the Epirate national identity is pretty small nowadays. So, for me, it's the simple fact that the Balkans are complicated that wiped this one from the history books, but I'm glad that we got to talk about it today. But before I let you go, I want to ask you just a small favor. If you are a returning listener to the show, I'm going to assume that means you like it. And if you like it, I would be very grateful if you would leave a review on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever it is you listen. It would help the show grow, and I would be very grateful. So thank you if you do that, and if not, I hope to see you again next week on the History of Forgotten Lands podcast.